Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Wind gap. There's a murder there. One of the ones missing now. Get me a story. Bad mama. Goodness, I didn't expect you. The house is not up to par for visitors. I'm just in town on business. What kind of person does that? Hurt a child. Doesn't help anything. Riling folks up. You got two mutilated girls on your hands. Someone else is doing the rhyming. I didn't come back to cause any problems. Everything you do comes back on me. Promise doesn't need to be careful around you. Are you dangerous? Hello and welcome to Still Watching Sharp Objects, an unofficial podcast about the HBO series Sharp Objects. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Each week, we break down the latest episode and occasionally feature interviews with people who worked on the show. Last week, we had the great Elizabeth Perkins, a.k.a. Jackie. This week, we will be talking to Detective Dick himself, Chris Messina. And De- then... <laughs> Detective Dick, indeed. <laughs> In every way. And at the end of the episode, we will be diving into a spoiler section that's for book readers only. But before we get to any of that, we're going to take a spoiler-free look at the Mike Nichols film, Closer, starring Jude Law, <laughs> Natalie Portman, Julia Roberts and Clive Owen. That's why we're here. Yeah. Right, Richard? Can't wait. We're going to talk about... Um, oh, I forgot the guy's name who sings the song at the end. Damien Rice. Damien Rice. Yeah. Oh, man. What a- uh, <laughs> no, okay. We're here to talk about uh, Episode 5, Sharp Objects, titled also titled Closer, directed by Jean-Marc Vallée, written by Scott Brown. Uh, before we, you know, sort of get into our little, like, beat-by-beat breakdown of the episode, which I thought, I thought this was a really good episode, uh, we want to address a few factual errors and uh, read an email that we got. Um, so... Richard, I was playing a drinking game this week of like every time we got a tweet or an email about uh missing this blood stain for our favorite character Ashley, um I got to take a little drink. So I've been trashed all week. Waste but, um, waste. <laughs> we got a lot of corrections. We uh-huh. we missed we missed that Ashley uh you know, John John Keane's girlfriend, little Miss Perfect Ashley, was using that bleach to clean up a blood spot that she found on the carpet. And we like went off on this whole tangent about how it was like a symbolic of her cleaning her 
dirty sexuality or whatever. Uh, when in fact she was just doing some, some light, uh, bloodstain cleaning like you do in Wind Gap. So that is something that we missed that some of you told us about nicely. Some of you told us about a little more, mm-hmm. not less nicely. And I, and I guess like in the context of the show, it would suggest that Ashley doesn't necessarily, you know, it, it's possible she thinks that he did it. <laughs> you know, she's willing to accept that possibility. Right. And in this episode, she says to Camille, like, I know things. You don't want to burn this bridge. So, you right. know, uh, she knows how to get bloodstains out of carpets. That's always useful. Uh, we were also wrong about Calhoun Day. I mean, not wrong. We were just like kind of guessing that maybe Calhoun Day would be like, um, I think we might have done this in the spoiler section. We were guessing like the Calhoun Day would be the penultimate episode that, 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 that something big would happen at Calhoun Day. Um, and, and you know, it was, it was a nice like boiling point episode, but, um, it wasn't like the, the, finale that we were sort of hoping or thinking it would be but I, I really liked it um especially as it acts as you know with with the exception of like a few field trips it acts as kind of a bottle episode yeah. um on the lawn which i really really liked so uh is there anything you want to say about the episode like as a whole before we sort of break it down uh well i think we were going to read an email from a from a listener right about about the kind of southernness of missouri which i feel like really speaks to this episode Absolutely. Yeah. We were wondering before whether or not Missouri counted as like a Southern state. There was a debate about like, you know, why is this Confederate soldier such a big, um, part of Missouri? Is Missouri a Southern state? We got an email from a listener. Um, Andrea writes in and says, um, Hey there. Uh, I really enjoy the podcast for the entertaining and in-depth perspective a female and gay-identified male provide. I am by no means an expert on television or media in general, so I appreciate providing the everyday commoner breakdown uh, for week by week. To answer your inquiry presented during the latest episode about if Missouri is considered part of uh, the Dixie South. It absolutely is. By today's standards, St. Louis is one of the most, if not the most, racially segregated cities in the entire United States. The Missouri Compromise was the prequel to the beginning of the Civil War. This legislation was basically an understanding between the North and South that no more slavery states would be permitted uh, into the Union, but wait, we'll allow just this one more exception to appease radically growing tensions within the federal government over slavery. Michael Brown's death and the creation of the Black Lives Matter movement was the culmination of generations of institutionalized racism Jim Crow and generational trauma passed on from black family to black family. It is very much a part of the South and remains a battleground to this day. Um, I really like that perspective from Andrea. And of course, in this episode, we get um, so many Confederate flags, but then also this interesting line from Camille where she says, we don't use the C word Confederacy um, in Missouri. Uh, what, did, what did you think of like, the way in which the, the location of, of Missouri, obviously like Sharp Objects was, was published before um, some of the major protests that happened um, in Ferguson and St. Louis. But like, what do you think of, of Missouri as a, as emblematic of something larger in our country, Richard? Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. And I think that, um, you know, it, it, it kind of helps explain Gillian Flynn's kind of continual fascination with that part of the country. I mean, granted she's from there, but you know, she's set, a number of her stories there. And, um, you know, I think that that sort of added foundational tension, that foundational oppression, um, you know, just adds that much more sub, you know, text and sort of context and, um, grimness to, um, you know, this kind of surface story. And I think that while, you know, Missouri's original sin in, in the real world, uh, is what it is in terms of slavery, uh, 
Calhoun, uh, or, or Widgap rather, you know, we see with Calhoun Day, like, has its own, not original sin exactly, but like, a weird, troubled history of, you know, going back to the, fa- it's, you know, beginnings of like how it views women and, um, you know, so I think that both Missouri and Wind Gap are places very much informed by the, uh, cruelty of their, uh, beginnings. Yeah, I, I love that idea of this. I mean, maybe not original sin, but just sort of this, like, the, the foundation myth of, uh, well, myth, whatever, of, of wind gap is tied up in sexual assaults and, and like more specifically female silence around sexual assault. The thing that I, I, I was maybe going to bring this up later, but I think it's maybe worth bringing up now. So the, I, I went back and double checked. I know that you guys are, are going to be honest if we make any book errors at all, but like the name Millie Calhoun is never mentioned, um, in the book. Millie Calhoun is not a figure in the book. Um, the, as I, as I think I mentioned last week, the figure of Cal, of her husband, uh, Calhoun, Zeke Calhoun, right? Um, he is mentioned, but like this whole foundation myth, of wind gap or whatever you want to call it is not part of the book. So it's invented for the show and something that like didn't occur to me until the third time through. I was, I was like word searching through my Kindle app for the word Millie to make sure I didn't miss it. And then I was like, well, maybe they spell it differently than what I'm thinking. So I just like shortened it to M I L L. And I realized that in the book, Emma calls Camille, she calls her like meal, like, or Millie. I don't know how you would pronounce it, but M I L L E is like a nickname that Emma has for Camille. And that's when it occurred to me and it hadn't that Millie is a nickname for Camille. It can be, um, also like Amelia and a bunch of other names, but it can be a nickname for Camille. So like the fact that they have created this character of Millie Calhoun and the fact that she has a nickname that could apply to our main character um, is something that I think is kind of fascinating. Yeah. And then of course that Camille has like had a, had a sexual, uh, I mean, I would call it a sexual assault and her silence around that is, is something that is very foundational to her and who she is. So, um, all right. So let us go back to the beginning. This, this episode does the same thing as last week's episode where it picks off, like, it picks up immediately sort of where it left off with some of these, like, com- uh, uh, Emma caught in the headlights and Camille thinking about her in the hunting cabin with her teeth pulled out. Um, it's unclear sort of like what happened if at the end of that night, like, did Camille find Emma and just like pop her in the Volvo and take her home? Or did she just like wind up going home after all that? It, it's unclear, but like basically Emma's home safe and sound Camille's in her bed, uh, waking up. And that's how we start this lovely Calhoun day. Yeah. And once again, you know, there's, um, she's hearing like when in, in the kind of dream thing where she's out driving, there's this kind of persistent little ticking noise. And then when she wakes up, we realize it's someone, you know, hammering in a, a tent stake or whatever outside. So it's just like, again, valet, like doing that really good kind of blending. And it's really neat. Yeah. And you can also hear, if you watch it again, you can also hear, um, like Emma's running her lines for the pageant and you can hear those yeah. lines, mm-hmm. um, over, over those dream shots. And they're the lines, they're the like, what Millie Calhoun says as she's being sexually assaulted by the soldiers. Like those are the lines that Emma's running as she's like giggling and, and like roller skating on the porch with her friends. Um, you also hear the song that the, the really powerful song closes the episode, um, Palante by, uh, Hurry for the Riff Raff. Um, and 
Camille's listening to it at the beginning of the episode and at the end of the episode. So it's a nice little musical bookend. Um, but then we see Alan and Adora getting ready. This is, this is an amazing thing about this episode. I can tell, I can't tell how much it is like valet messing with the editing or just does Adora have two looks for this day? Cause she's got this like peachy dress that she puts on at the beginning of the day, but is not what she winds up wearing. Yeah. yeah to, she has a costume to, change. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the, um, we've got Alan saying this thing where he's like, this day is about celebrating what's like immovable about this place and about us, which is like such a, uh, uncomfortable to me, like regressive, um, what's what are the, what's the like really toxic phrase that people use to talk about um protecting confederate monuments sort of our uh, i don't know um i don't know honoring history or whatever like yeah, yeah honoring yeah. history whatever that is and that's what it feels like to me some yeah, sort of like weird milk milk mealy mouthed way of talking about honoring the confederacy so yeah uh and then we get this like first uh, curry call. We get two curry calls in this episode because first curry call and Camille is a viral hit. Richard? Yeah, she, she, um, you know, people are really interested in this, um, you know, these two murdered young women in a creepy town. I was, isn't that strange that, that, that big city people would read that article and be like, want more of it? <laughs> yeah, we're not ghouls at all. Um, but yeah, so curry says that, that this article, the latest one that, published on Calhoun Day, uh, is getting the, the website more page views than they've ever gotten in their entire lives. So um there you go. And Camille is like a little worried about it, but she gets much more worried about it later. And then we get this great sequence, um, which is the first of several that has to do with this like crazy floor that's in um Adora's room. We've we've seen it before. This isn't the first time, but like we get this great flashback as uh Camille drops her water bottle into her mom's room and is like afraid to go get it because she's afraid to go into this room. And we get this flashback of a photographer um, taking a photo of the floor. What did you think of this whole sequence? Yeah, I thought it was, you know, interesting. And I think that Amy Adams did a really good jo- job of subtle, but you know, really on point physical acting where you, you could see like Camille, like there was so much muscle memory just restraining her from even, you know, stepping a toe over that, over that, the, the the door jam you know and like um i i feel like we all have some sort of you know aversion built into us if, as children that like you know it that that doing it you know kind of going against it, even though we as adults now are like eh, whatever like it would just be some sort of violation so anyway i thought that was really well articulated and i also thought it was interesting you know just another sort of layer of this portrait of young Camille's or Camille's sort of sexual past where she's, you know, kind of making eyes at this photographer and he back at her. And so there was just this ever sort of present feeling of, um, I don't know, I don't want to danger, I guess, but like, it's more sort of like, um, illicit sort of enticement. Yeah. And like, um, the theme of watching, which is like so prevalent in this episode and like wanting to be noticed and, um, jealousy of someone else being noticed. You know what I mean? Like, cause 
part of the reason that Camille gets in trouble here is she tracks a muddy footprint or two into the room, but also because the photographer is watching her and not paying as much attention to Adora as I think Adora would want. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, as Adora is giving this like crazy family history, we find out that she's, she, her mother was a Calhoun. She married a preaker. The preakers had the money. The Calhouns had the house. And like Adora says something like there was soldier's blood on this, on this floor and on all this stuff like that. Adora has her high heels on in this, in this, scene like walking around this room but the photographer does not have his shoes on and then later when like dick and adora go in there neither of them have their shoes on so this whole like thing of like shoes and at this floor this crazy floor which you know is uh like tusks sort of whittled down but i like i like to think about this as like um like the floor is another sharp object basically like these are yeah these are sharp tusks that have been softened um one little detail i like you know you see you see the southern living article that's up framed in the in the room of course it's just marion in the photo with adora mm-hmm. uh camille was not uh, asked to be in that photo um but it the, the headline on the article is uh legacy and ivory uh, which I guess is a, is a fun, zippy, ebony and ivory, po- uh, pun. In the book, the headline was Ivory Toast. Um, so I think they punched it up a little bit. Yeah. And also show. like changing ebony to legacy. Yes. Like, uh, like it just, you know, further reinforces the fucked upness of this community and this particular day. Absolutely. Um, and I did like, we, it was very brief, but I, I, I like the glimpses that we see of Marion and Camille and their relationship as kids and like how cute they're being like goofing around with each other, how important it was for them to have this like sisterly bond with each other, especially for Camille who felt so cut off from love and like Marion's her one source of love in that house, you know, um, or, or whatever feeble thing that, that Alan can offer her. And so when we get later stuff with, with Emma saying like, don't tell mama, like that's this like, you know, sort of semblance of sisterly intimacy that Emma's offering her. Though, of course it comes with like, you know, all these other thorns, but like, I, I can understand why Camille continually gets sucked back into the Emma stuff because of her, of that, of that, as you said, like earlier foundational, uh, relationship with Marion, you know? So. Yeah. Uh, and then we see like Camille ignoring a call from, from Dick, uh, who is, who's the first to point out that maybe this wasn't the, the best day to publish that article where she basically like points at, points to Bob Nash and John Keene as the two main subs, uh, suspects. We get, uh, Vickery and Dick encountering each other in the, in the shave shop. And I like to point out that Detective Dick seems to literally have one dress shirt, just that one dark blue number, unless he has like a whole closet full of the same shirt. So, um, I don't know. What do you, did you, is there anything about the like Vickery Dick conversation that you felt worth digging into? Um, I mean, I think it's just like, I guess I kind of like the show expanding on this rivalry, you know, in, in creating a sort of more tension because it's a TV show, blah, 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 blah. blah. Um, I don't want much more time spent on it though. You know, like we get it. They, they're antagonizers, but they both, you know, want to crack the case, whatever. Like, I think that it's been stated, you know, enough. And I think that we can go back to the, to the ladies. 
I do like that, uh, Vickery, um, like Vickery's so wrong, right? He calls, um, Camille a bad apple from a good tree. Yeah. And uh, it's, and it's funny that like, I mean, again, we're like watching it from the outside, but like, how could anyone spend any time with Adora and be like, oh, she's great. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That lady rules. She's demonstrably not. <laughs> we see it later when she's talking to the ladies on the veranda. It's just like, she's not a nice person. No. But like, but right before she talks to the ladies on the veranda, she just lays the sugar on yeah. those, like, those children there. So yeah. it's, it's interesting. Um, Camille says she's, she'll run line with Emma once again. This is the rape scene. Like we get, we get to hear it a couple times before we get to see it. Uh, this Calhoun pageant rape scene. I like, I can't, it's a, like, it works. This episode really works, but like, if you take one half step back, it is insane that there is a day where the entire town sits around and watches the reenactment of the rape of a, you know, a young woman. Um, and like, that's the point, obviously, but it's still like, it's, it's crazy that it doesn't feel completely, um, like science fiction while you're watching it. You know what I mean? Right. So. Yeah. Adora decides that Camille needs a dress and, uh, she goes, we're going to do a field trip just as girls. And then she goes, do you hear that, Alan? Yeah. Uh, Alan, who winds up being their chauffeur on the girls only field trip. That was a nice little juxtaposition of a line. Um, and, um, this is where we find out about Emma's second phone and Emma is super pissed to learn about the article. I feel like she's most pissed that like, she didn't know about the article first. That that's what struck me. What did you think? Yeah, about that, that she that she had to be told about it, you right. know, and like she's so bored in this town and like you know, it's scary and dark stuff that's happening, but it's something interesting and I think that you know, given that she has she she should have access to the kind of center of the story because her sister's there writing about it, she doesn't, you know. And so, yeah. you know, she clearly seems betrayed and we see that later in the episode um during the little performance. Um, you know, so she's, she's just somebody who like is, is, is very sensitive and like does not like feeling like she has been at all sort of discounted or, um, looked over. And I think, you know, you can see how she gets that directly from Adora because I feel like the whole let's get Camille address field trip is Adora punishing Camille. Like, I don't know. She seems to be punishing Camille for like, Emma wanting to run lines with Camille. It's like anytime someone diverts attention away from Adora or away from Emma, those two women find a way to like punish everyone around them, you know? And, uh, so this, I mean, it feels like a punishing field trip to be honest with you. But, um, what is interesting, you mentioned the sound design of the episode, like, you know, and, and like, obviously we like to talk about the, the hog heat of wind gap, but like, this is the hog heatiest episode, I think so far. The, the sound of the cicadas, the sound of like, ev- the, the meat sizzling, everything mm-hmm. in this episode just like makes me feel, um, overheated. Yeah. Everyone's um, day drunk, you know, yes. which is a particular feeling kind of Ugh, bleary yeah. and yeah, yeah. Everyone's like sweaty and day drunk, but, but before we get to that, we get this weird little, like hermetically sealed moment in the, in the Krellen family car with Alan driving yeah. the ACs, the ACs blasting, the doors are sealed, the, the light is like blue, 
and everything is like a, a little different in this little box contained box. And um, I just thought that was an interesting juxtaposition of like what we'll get later, all the noise we get later. And then this little like Perry Cuomo singing um, yeah. as they're driving into town. This oh. kind of like Alan's like crooning music and like, mm-hmm. and Adora kind of casts this like loving gaze back into the back seat, not just at, Emma, it almost looks like she's looking at Camille too. I don't know. It's just, it is a strange kind of like dreamy little interlude, um, that, you know, uh, forgets the outside world for a second. Right. And it's, it feels like Adora's like, ah, oh, my perfect family, like my picture perfect family, even right. though we know she doesn't feel that way about Camille, really. Um, <laughs> we get more complaints from her about her hand as she goes to the shop. I love, you know, like, the, the idea here is like the shop owner has opened the shop for Adora. Basically, oh, like totally. Adora can command the shop to be open for her. And even as this is happening for her, she's bitching about the grate that this woman has to like roll back because the shop was closed. And the woman has to like open it for her. And she's like, oh, this grate is so unattractive. I can't believe people feel like they need to do this. You know? Yeah. Thing. Poor Sarah Beth. Uh, poor Sarah Beth. Um, and, and she says this weird, uh, Adora says this weird shit about Camille's father. She's like, yeah, she gets her looks from her father and her temperament too. And Camille's like, and this is, this is ripped exactly from the book where Camille's like, that's the most I ever heard about my father. And there's this great part in the book where Camille says like, um, I wonder if she told like what she's told other shop owners and if I should go to like all the shop owners of Wind Gap and try to like put together a sketchy <laughs> portrait of yeah. like who my dad is based on things that they've been told. Um, but they're shopping for these dresses. Uh, this is like, okay, so we've talked about Eliza Scanlon and I think how great she is in this role. But like the the weird little puppy dog whines that she gives in this scene oh, when yeah. she's not getting all the attention she wants. I, It's amazing. She's so annoying in this scene, like the character, you know, mm-hmm. when like Camille is like, uh, like, please wait in the car, please wait in the car. And she just like won't go. And you're just like, ah, this kid is like such a nuisance in a way. But like, well, yeah. well played, obviously. But like. Um, I found this scene incredibly stressful. Oh my god, so stressful! And the, like the fact that it ends so like you know once again this is this is directly from the from the book. And if you want to read a little bit more about this scene, our colleague Julie Miller has an interview with um, Amy Adams, makeup artist, about sort of some of the the scarring that we see because we see like I think our most in-depth look at the scarring on her body and the extent of the damage. Um, and so you can find that on VF.com right now if you want to. But um, uh, like, what did you think of, of the reveal? Like, d- was it worse than you imagined? Was it what you were imagining? And how, how do you feel like uh, they pulled it off? I think they did a good job. I mean, when I read the book, I remember, I mean, a long time ago, I remember thinking that like the whole gimmick of her carving words on herself was like a little bit, Mm, not believable in a way like maybe that's true maybe people do do that and i apologize if i'm being like flippant about it i don't mean to be i just mean like it just seemed like kind of a device um and i think that it's been pretty subtly employed on the show like I- I'm-, I'm happy with that and i think that like the way that they got her to look like it it felt very real which made it all the more stressful you know and like you know emma's reaction wasn't just scream and horror nor was adora's it was like they were certainly put off and you know sort of horrified by it but it wasn't like you know she wasn't a monster right there is and and there's some like there's like a weird beauty to it you know what i mean i don't mean to like i don't want to like 
glamorize a serious issue, nor do I want to like, you know, make anyone who's listening to this, uh, who has cut like feel ostracized. I don't want to do either of those things, but that is the like the weird, um, or, or I would say like tricky needle, um, that this episode's trying to thread, um, and the, and the tricky, the trickiness of that particular design, makeup design of like, I think you are meant to find it, um, like it's different than what we saw on Alice's body. I feel like when, when Alice held up her skirt, when her roommate Alice held up her skirt and earlier and you see the, the cuts on her legs, like this just looks different. And, and we get that in the following scene when Emma is like, I know someone like you will not like you. You know what I mean? Like she right. cuts, but she cuts differently than other people cut, you know? And so I, th- I think that that's like a really interesting reveal. And um of course, Adora says, the most venomous thing. I mean, first of all, she's in this position because Emma stole her clothes. Great. Um, and then, you know, Adora says, you're ruined. And also like, and you did this out of spite. Basically like her damage is about Adora. And of course it is about Adora, but Adora like makes it as much about her as the cut on her hand is about her. Yeah. You know what and, I mean? and she also says to Camille, it's worse than I remember. And then Camille says, you were there toward the end. Meaning, like, you know how bad it got, and you still let me go into this dressing room with these dresses, you know? Like, and so obviously, like you said, this was a punishment. She wanted this to happen. She says as much. She's like, I'm glad she saw. Yeah. Um, And so she's, yeah, it's just like a really cruel thing to do. And it's a long, it's a long punishment. I mean, they had to get in the car and go there. She had to call Sarah Beth and have Sarah Beth open the store on Calhoun Day. Just so she, just, so she, of all days. just so she just could so she, do this. Yeah, just so she could humiliate her daughter. And then, and so then that casts a different light maybe on that car scene where it's like, maybe she looks so pleased because she knows she's about to like, yeah. lead her into this trap. I mean, it's just awful. Um, you know, and then we get this great moment of Amy Adams screaming into the dress and it's just, it's so well done. Um, like Amy Adams has been great throughout this whole thing, but I think this, this, um, eruption and then, um, some of the vulnerability we see from her at the very end of the episode, like I think it's some of the best work that she's yeah, done so far. Totally. Something, and something that I thought was so fascinating about your conversation with Elizabeth Perkins last week, um, was this discussion of the levels, the modulation and level of sound of people talking in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was saying that like this, that Jean-Marc Vallée keeps the set kind of quiet. And as a result, people wind up almost like whispering their lines uh, in the show. And so when someone is loud, like Jackie is loud, then it's like more alarming than it might otherwise be. And so when like Jackie is loud or if, you know, even muffled, if if Camille screams, um, that feels like, you know, even more of a violation of this calm, quiet, disturbing environment that Adora has crafted around her. Yeah, you know? totally. Um, all right. And then we get, uh, you know, we're, we're almost to actual Calhoun day, but then we get this like last scene with Emma and Camille, um, where great line where Emma's talking about a girl she knows who cuts and Camille's like, Oh, she sounds like an after school special. And Emma says, what's that? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> 
For those of you who don't know, <laughs> after school, that was like 70s and 80s, right? Early 80s and 70s. Yeah, uh, I think they they had them up through the early mid 90s, like like sporadically. But yeah, it was mostly an invention of the 70s and 80s, I think. Right. I feel like in the 90s, it took it became like the very special episode was something that sort of like came over. Basically, like after school specials. I mean, I know most people listening know this, but like after school specials were like these, uh, televised thing that, that dealt with a certain issue. The one that I always think of is there's one like that's about, I believe, Angel Duster PCP that Helen Hunt was in. So mm-hmm. very young Helen Hunt. Um, it is on YouTube if you want to like, uh, see something kind of amazing, but they're these sort of overwrought, over the top, kind of tone deaf, out of touch with the kids, uh, treatments of certain issues. So for Emma to say like, this is how the girl that I know, like, this is how she talks about cutting. Camille's like, yeah, that sounds like both textbook and like, you know, not very applicable to my situation, yeah. I guess. Sort of how that feels. Um, and basically like, you know, Emma begs her to stay and then she gives her a dress that will work. Um, she just happens to have a long sleeved, uh, long skirted dress ready to go. But still so. like distressingly sort of sheer and like they're a little like you know hole it's lacy they're like little holes cut out and i was like oh is that is that going to cover enough i mean I, you see later that she's wearing tights um but anyway yeah it's 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 funny to see her in this kind of regalia because it like to basically dress in the costuming of the house because obviously yeah. she's been so resistant to that um otherwise uh so i think that that also sets this episode at a at an interesting sort of pitch that like she like like Vickery is in costume for this day and how that affects how she acts. Yeah, and she's wearing these like thick white tights. Yeah, like in that in all that hog heat. Yeah, um, it's just it looks so uncomfortable. Um, and but yeah, and she pairs it with like this little hat and stuff like that. And she has her second curry call where she talks about like wanting to leave, and he basically like he's he's like you can come home if you want. Yeah. Um, and she does this thing that I love where she's like. He's like, how are you doing? She's like, not great, but I guess that's not your, like, any of your concern. And that is like, oh, I, I like recognize that so much of yeah. like, it's someone who wants someone to tell them that they care, but like positioned as like, you don't care. You don't care how I feel sort of thing. Um, and then she says, oh, she says this other thing where she's like, being here, I feel like a bad person. And yeah. she just br- breaks down as she says it. And it's like, for for those of us who have challenging relationship with, with our parents, like that is exactly what being home can feel like. Yeah, and know? it's such an it's such a a perfectly articulate line in that I think a, 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 a something that was not as smart as this would be like, you know, I hate being here because my mom sucks or whatever. You know, I have bad memories of something that happened to me. But the thing, the feeling of, I feel like she's taking on the weight of it. You know, she's, she's like believing Adora's assessment of her, the town's assessment of her. And it's not because she's weak willed exactly. It's just because it's so built into her. Um, and this idea that like, okay, well then maybe when she goes to home to St. Louis, she doesn't feel like a bad person, but she's clearly in bad shape there too. So I don't know. I just think it's a really, um, sensitive and, um, accurate. Um, sentiment for her to express at that moment. Like, I, I like, I, it, it's not melodramatic. I think it's exactly like what, some, what she would be thinking and feeling. 
And this is the number that Adora has, I completely agree with you. And this is the number that Adora has done on her in terms of like, um, it, it goes back to that line that we like bristled at where it's like, look, look what you did when, when the yeah. thorn cuts Adora's palm. And like, so Camille feels like the kind of person who cuts herself out of spite to upset her mother or tracks a muddy footprint onto an ivory floor or somehow prompts a rose to slice her mother's palm open like she feels like a mistake like yeah. a bad person throughout and it's just uh it's so i uh, i find it completely relatable but and adora um, adora yeah. says to both girls i think in the store she's like you made me bleed like she's like you know the because the cut reopens or whatever and yeah. like not to get like to whatever about it but like mothers do inherently bleed for their children you know and and that is not something that you should that mothers or parents should make their i mean not all mothers obviously have birth or you know to their children but like give birth to their children but like um you know is like adora always putting this onus on 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 especially camille but also you know on emma a little bit to sort of apologize for for any sort of discomfort they've given her when that's like kind of the enterprise of being a parent i mean it's just very telling yeah, I, I, I love all of this. Um, and this is what leads us into the actual Calhoun Day stuff. Um, which is, and, and like, once again, I don't know who, who out there is like rewatching Sharp Objects, but if you rewatch the episode, uh, or maybe you notice this the first time, almost every single establishing shot of a character then has a following shot of another character watching them. Yeah, totally. Um, it, yeah. It's like, almost every single thing. And so like, you know, if you've got um Camille walking to the house with Dick, you then see Jackie watching Camille walking into the house with Dick. Or if you see Bob Nash taking a swig from his flask, you then see Vickery watching Bob Nash take a swig from his flask. And it's like, it's insane. And like, we've talked, we keep talking about how Jean-Marc Vallée must have this like intricate yarn wall of like edits and cuts, but it's even harder when it's all this web that he's created within this one setting, you know what I mean? Yeah. You, f- you flash out very infrequently and mostly it's about him drawing these connections between uh, like, it's a, it's a web basically, you know? Um, I kind of want to subtitle this episode Jocelyn knows <laughs> because Vickery's Vic- wife, Jocelyn, like if you, if we feel sorry for Sarah Beth, I think we feel even worse for Jocelyn who like definitely knows the implication seems even stronger in this episode that Vickery and Adora like are having some kind of relationship. The thing that actually pings that for me is not, you know, like we, we were kind of questioning it. They seem like oddly intimate in last week's episode, but the thing that really pings it for me, um, is not even like the bitchy thing that Jackie says about like the Krellen girls love their men with badges. Yeah. Not even like Jocelyn being like, you look lovely as ever. It's Vickery calling Adora Miss Krellen in front of Jocelyn and then Adora yeah, everywhere totally, else. Totally. And I'm like, that's it to me. That yeah. tells me yeah. that they either are or have at least like fucked. And, um, yeah, poor Jocelyn. And the Jocelyn, the sort of deference that she pays to, to Adora. And, and we see it a couple more where she's like, thank you so much for having us. And everyone thanks her. And it's like, well, but if, why? Like, of course, like this is the town's holiday. I know it's on her land, but like, what were people not going to go like you have to go so like they're thanking her but like and it's like they're being made to it's like um kiss the ring yeah yeah Yeah. and 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 um and there's such a sadness in that kind of pathetic like 
you know, she's the queen, literally, in some ways, you know. Well, yeah, and and the um, like, so one of the first shots we get is is like Jackie and and the the ladies who lunch or brunch. Um, uh, they call themselves the Veranda Girls, <laughs> thirty five mm-hmm. years running or whatever, and and they like are talking shit on Adora, and then Adora shows up, and it's like immediately like. Yeah, kiss the ring, like veiled sort of whatever. But yeah, you have to pay deference. Or when Katie Lacey and her little pack of like former cheerleaders, one of them starts talking about Emma, and then Katie's like, remember whose lawn you're on right now. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's exactly that. It's like, this is the queen and this is her day. I mean, every day is Adora's day. And she's forcing it. everyone to be there so, so they yeah. can thank her for being there. You know? Yeah. Um, the, the whole Jocelyn thing reminded me of, um, like prima nocta, you know, that like, yeah. if, if you're, if you're like, if you're the lord of a certain era, you get the right to anyone's bride. You, you can have them on their wedding night or whatever. Um, and it's just sort of like, yeah, Jocelyn's given her husband to Adora because what else is she going to do? Adora gets to have whatever she wants. So, and, and then Jocelyn will thank her for the, for the favors. So. I believe it's also called like droit de seigneur or something yeah. like that, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. But yeah, you it's in the movie Braveheart. Yes, that's where I learned about it. Yeah. Um but yeah, so I talked before about the the sound design about like the cicadas and it's just like ramped up to 11 it's crazy um and messina is just like sweating through his dress shirt. There's this interaction between Bob Nash and Detective Dick where um the sun is just like blazing on their faces like full force and like i really imagine that in most other productions there would be some kind of sunshade where you would like know that it was sunny but i feel like your actors wouldn't be as much in direct sunlight um as that to the point where like christmas you know, detective dick puts his hand up over his eyes to shade them which is such like a recognizable human gesture yeah but one that i feel like you don't see in movies that often no it's true it's true and i think it speaks to the fact that like um you know he's using so much natural light um Mm -hmm. that like yeah i mean you use the natural light of a dim situation too but that means you have to use the natural light of a bright one you know right and so like these these actors are just sort of baking under that but we get all these like various interactions you know like the gang's all here even james capisi is like running around stealing um bottles of pop and (laughs) stuff like that um like a little feral child uh ashley's pissed that she was left out of the article um john keen sulk like basically get like shots of john keen sulking shots of bob nash drinking vickery's watching dick's watching all of this like intricate like dancing is happening so um and then what like uh, but i want you i want to know what you think of like these these trio of boys the, the the men um basically like kirk Lacey's friends who are are hanging out um and their interaction with with dick and camille and them being like um yeah so leering and so and then they like do this weird singing which i love and is just so weird like what do you what do you think about that yeah i kind of found myself wondering a little bit if if they would have been that way to her there on that day you know it's very they're pretty direct about like do you want to go to the woods basically you know and maybe they're sort of just making a har har kind of like old you know old days joke maybe they're serious but the the, sort of the, the way that these like you know, three guys kind of menace the whole afternoon. Um, maybe feels a little bit overstated to me. Um, but you know, we are at episode, what is it? Five. And we, so we got three more to go. So we have to kind of ramp things up. Um, but I thought I did like when, um, one of them said to Dick, you ain't in Kansas anymore, Toto. 
right. not Kansas City, and you're like, right. does he know where Kansas City is? Right. <laughs> I mean, part oh. of Kansas City is in Kansas, yes, but like it's mostly in Missouri, so yeah. it's just funny. I have to wonder almost, like, now that you bring it up, I have to wonder, like, all the women are being so careful to follow Adora's rules. Right. And and I have to wonder, like, if the men don't feel as beholden to following the rules of, of like, well, um, obey the queen. Sort yeah, of and maybe that's, that, that's the, um, you know, that's maybe that's the tone that she struck or the sort of, you know, the, the, the scene she set is that these guys feel like they can hoot and, you know, hit on Camille or not hit on, but like, you know, aggress upon her and make weird threats to an armed police officer and scream baby killer at a teenage boy who's grieving his sister. You know, like they seem very empowered there. Um, and I don't know if I necessarily believe that Adora would, would work that. Yeah, I agree. Like even like, even to the extent of like, you're making a scene that I don't want there to be a scene. Right. Exactly. If we're, if we're going to go back to that foundational town myth, like that, you know, the silent women and the like, uh, loudly vocal and aggressive men is exactly like what that story is. But, um, I see, I see what you mean that Adora wouldn't, wouldn't countenance that, but Adora is distracted, right? Because she sees like, uh, you know, Camille, Camille pointedly puts her arm through Dick's, uh, arm, um, after like, in and around the time that she's telling him about the story of Millie Calhoun and, and Camille sees it or Adora sees it. And she, I love this. She like sends Jodes to run interference. So she's like, basically Jodes go distract Camille. (laughs) And then she invites Dick into her house for the tour. And another little moment that I love about this is like, not only Jackie watches them go inside, but like she interrupts Emma giving a tour of her little house, which is like her little doll house. Like Emma has invited a gentleman to the house. I mean, yes, so that they could take drugs, but also like, she's like, Oh, we were just looking at my doll house. Right. Um, which is a nice little echo of what, uh, Adora is about to do. Yeah. And I, I really like Jackie watching all of this and there's one loaded Jackie look or two actually that come later in the episode that I want to talk about. But, um, Mm -hmm. but Elizabeth Perkins doesn't have a lot to say in this episode, but she does a lot. Oh, she's just looking. And like, I mean, you know, uh, as, as she said to you in last week's episode, she's like, Jackie knows everything. And like, you really see it in this episode because yeah. like, I don't think we've seen Jackie like on the observation beat as much as we do in this episode where she's just watching everyone absorbing it and understanding it in a way that like we, the audience want to understand what she understands, yeah. you know? So she sees what everyone's doing. She knows what all the shit means. Um, and yeah. And so then we get this like, um, we get the Katie, well, we got like Kirk Lacey talking to Camille and we get a little bit better sense of like why he looked at her so oddly at the funeral and looked at her, uh, and left the bar. It feels like guilt. Um, yeah. you know, so like he was one of the young men who like, you know, assaulted her or however you want to call it in the woods we get that like definitive flash between him and the young boy so we know that they're the same person and then he just says like i've been thinking about you and it feels like regret right like that's how i read that um as opposed to the other three jekylls Um, and 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 jackie is like kind of cautious around him or she's sort of like you know you know it's almost seems protective of of camille Right. In that moment. And, you know, so clearly, yeah. But I, but yeah, I think that they might be setting up that Kirk is at least a little bit remor- like guilt, remorseful. Um, and, and his 
And, and as with every shot, someone else is watching that. So Katie Lacey, his wife is watching that. And yeah. so like that inspires, I feel like her later invitation to Camille where she's like, come over, we'll watch beaches. And like, uh, she know she's, she's not dumb. Katie knows exactly the right thing to say. She's like, you'll get a month's worth of articles from us in the first 10 minutes. Yeah. And so, which is the only way I could think that like Camille would go to that, but you get another great flash of you get those girls uh, a memory of them standing as like a cheer squad that was a really powerful one i thought yeah uh, yeah totally just the, just like the way that you know like i don't know i have old friends uh, i've been friends with since i was in high school and like sometimes i'll look at them and i'll just get a flash of them like at 16 or whatever you yeah. know just like the way that i you know it's it, i just think that like the valetisms are very carefully employed in this episode in particular. Like they're very sparing. He's very sparing with it. It's mostly like in real time. Yeah. Um, and I think that like it makes me appreciate them all the more. The, I'm curious if you have the same read on the Adora, like dick house tours. I do. There's part of it. That's like, um, let me impress upon you. My like importance. My wallpaper is hand painted from Paris. My floor dates back to whenever'sville, but there's also this like, um, I don't know, not like seduction, but um demand for attention. The way she kicks off her shoes, the way the camera follows her kicking off her shoes before she goes in that room, it feels like she's able to offer him like, like, cause later Camille doesn't even take her shoes off when they have sex. Right. So she's able to offer him like more intimacy, more slightly more access to her than Camille is able to offer him. And that feels like, you know, she does other shitty things, but that seems to be me that that's a part of it is like this proffering of some sort of sexual, um, I don't know, like pay attention to me kind of thing. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's that. And I think that in that is an expression of power and yeah. an expression. It, it's a, it's a weirdly, I think kind of a threat, you know, yeah. she's like telling him how old the house is, how, special it is how dangerous the house like the house is like made of dead animal you know animal parts like you know yeah you know like she's saying like do not fuck with this house meaning do not fuck with me meaning do not fuck with this town uh and um you know but also yeah being sort of seductive too like i think it's it's absolutely her recognizing that camille now has this kind of bond with him needing to let him know and her and camille know that like they, they can't, they're not going to form some sort of bond, Camille and, and Dick and, you know, sort of, you know, act without, yeah, w- with, you know, act on their own authority, you know, without her, like without she, her, exactly. she has to be part of this, uh, thing in yeah, the same exactly. way we saw with Emma feeling left out of not knowing about the article, you know, like yeah. this constant reassertion of center, you know, authority and everything is what that seems about to me. Yeah. And inviting him into the room where like, uh, Camille is not allowed to go into. You know, yeah. is another, uh, it's just awful. And so, yeah, so she calls Camille a rare rose who has her thorns. Um, and she mentions, like, it, it's true, like, basically later Camille, Camille is petrified 
that her mother is inviting him into the house to be like, do you know my daughter cuts like words all over her body and that's her secret shame and she's really like messed up and all this sort of stuff like that. Uh, she doesn't say that, but she refers to a recent episode, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of about as uh, direct as she get. But she's still like the whole, the message is, yes, it's one of power, it's one of reassertion into the narrative, but also like, yeah. <laughs> You know, echoing what Camille said earlier, which is like, I feel like a bad person. And Dora's like, she's fragile, but also she's a bad person. Like, you don't want to mess with her. She's a bad person. You know, yeah. it's just, Dora is such a piece of work. And I think that Dick handles that really well afterward, where he's like, oh, yeah, I know a lot. And he pauses and he's like, about that ivory floor. And it's just, yeah. it's really great. I don't know if he's withholding that he knows something about her as a sort of means to, you know, sort of use later or whatever, or if he's just genuinely being like nice, you know? Yeah. Because uh, there's like affectionate language in this episode where he's like, you know, the girl I'm seeing or something, you know, the woman I'm seeing. Um, and she's like, Oh, we're seeing each other. You know, like there's just, there's cute flirtation that, um, doesn't feel antagonistic at all. And so I think he's just maybe sort of protecting her or something. I can't tell if it's like the Messina coming through or what, but I like Dick so much more in the show than I did in the book. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and we'll see how that all plays out, but like, I, uh, I feel like he's been written. Yeah. As, as warmer and, and like he, and he's so savvy. He knows what Adora is doing and he's not, and he's doing his best. Like he's indulging her, uh, because like, you know, he's also looking for information and stuff like that, but he's like firmly on Camille's side. He's like, I'm team Camille in all of this. Yeah. You have my attention. You have my support. Yeah. Your mom droned on about her floor. Let's all roll. Let's roll our eyes together at your mom. Yeah. You know, and like, I'm on to her, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. I think seeing, you know, he's the only outsider in the show, right? I mean, Camille yeah. is of that world. So even though she's left it, um, and he's just basically saying very subtly to Camille, like, Oh, don't worry. Like, I know your mom's bullshit. And like, I, you know, uh, I'm, I, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't affect me. You know, she does it doesn't work on me. She brought me into her weird, like, womb layer thing. Uh, and, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm, and I emerged, you know, on, on hypnotized. Right. I'm no Vickery. I'm no Jocelyn. Like, yeah. I'm not going to be taken in by this. Um, yeah, I guess the only other outsider I would point out is, is John Keane, who's like, oh, right. Well, yeah, but he's, but- he's already been ostracized. He's a mess in yeah. himself. Um, then we get this like further, like really quick. Um, it's just amazing to me how much room this episode has for like side characters. We get this other wrinkle in the Lacey family drama where we get when we, when Emma takes the stage, we watch Kirk Lacey watch her and we watch Katie Lacey watch him. And so it's this, it's not just that Kirk Lacey is paying attention to Camille. It's that like maybe there's something with young girls that we should be on the lookout for yeah. with Kirk Lacey. We already saw Emma sort of like coming onto him, but like the way in which he's watching her back uh has at least his wife uh concerned. Mm-hmm. And then we get these this horrible pageant. Um and this I think maybe this is one of the loaded loaded looks that that uh the Jackie looks that you want to talk about because like Emma notices Camille not paying attention to her and Jackie notices yeah. Emma noticing yeah. Camille. Uh, is that, is yeah, that, that was the look talk I'm about? talking about is yeah. that like, like Jack and, and the look was one of sympathy, I think, but also sort of concern. Like, I don't know. Like, I feel like we're, it's still been established that Jackie is on Camille's side and 
we kind of tend to think of that as like her on Camille's side against Adora. Yeah. But, like maybe she's also on Camille's side against Emma. Um, in, in, for whatever reason, you know, um, not that Emma and Camille are like, you know, enemies or whatever, but like, I don't know. Um, I, I'm just curious about that Jackie look because it, it, it kind of communicated a lot. Also, we have to mention that there was a, there's a great shot of Jackie vaping. Yes. <laughs> when we, when we like flash to Emma taking like the Molly with her friends, yeah. uh, we then like watch Jackie watching her. And I feel like, you know, Jackie can tell that she's rolling in a way that, um, Adora can't. Mm-hmm. And she's like, that's because I know my way around a substance. And then she just like lets out this puff of vape smoke. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just it's so amazing. Good. And uh-huh. yeah. And so then, uh, and so then that adds, but the, the rolling aspects adds this like, really extra disturbing dimension to this scene where Emma is reenacting a rape and she's like getting pleasure out of being tied up to this tree because yeah. she's like on E. So I don't know. It's um and this, this scene, this, this, this play, God, the part when the union soldiers who are these gangly teenage <laughs> boys have to like close in on her and like sort of, thrust at her like one one of they're them doing does. like sideways hip sashing like yeah, wooden like yeah it's perfectly yeah. directed by valet like perfectly choreographed yeah. for all of its hideousness and its awkwardness and i also i mean i, I don't know using like is a weird word but like i appreciate how he cuts to the three ghouls you know the the bad yeah. men and they're they kind of lean forward to Ugh, like yeah really see like how are they showing this you know um, even though they see this every year, theory, right? Or, or is this, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, so it's just like a whole grotesque of a scene, um, but really well staged. And that's almost like, that reminds me of, um, there's so much about this story that reminds me of Shirley Jackson, who wrote, um, among other things, the lottery and that, 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 you know, in the lottery, a lot of, um, uh, that story was borrowed to use like in the hunger games and stuff like that. So think of it as maybe in terms of the hunger games every year, there's a, there's a tribute. There's a young teenage girl and young teenage boys every year who reenact a rape in front of the entire, that's, you know, Oh, which, who's going to be the Millie this year? Like, of course it's yeah. Emma this year, but like, who is going to be the teenage girl chosen to be the like, uh, you know, representational rape victim in front of everyone? And, and that almost gives it, and this is something that like, um, I think Elizabeth Perkins brought up when she was talking to you because she talked about, she, she called Adora a witch and Gillian Flynn also talked about some of like the supernatural feelings around this, this show and sort of like, that ritualistic aspect of it of like every year we have to do this rape uh because and that's part of the magic that keeps this town going is almost what it feels like uh to me when i watched it you know yeah uh and everyone has to witness it and yeah those those three ghouls have to like lean in and see it and like this is this is part of the power that keeps the town going um but so Emma, Emma is ticked off that Camille, uh, isn't paying attention to her. Camille's paying attention to Dick. But if, uh, I think she's if, hurt too. I think that it's, I think yeah. it's anger and a genuine sort of like disappointment. Yeah. Um, but if she's mad about that, she's even madder when like Bob Nash goes for John Keane. Um, and everyone's distracted, you know, like Dick and Vickery go running and even her mom turns around, turns her back for like a flat second and Emma like, you know, you can see her taking all this in, all this attention directed away from her. And she's, uh, to me, I read that as, 
I know how I can get attention. And she runs off in the other direction. Yeah. And, um, literally Adora just turns her back for a second, turns back around and Emma's gone. Um, and that becomes sort of the focus for the last, uh, little section of Calhoun day. Um, so we get m- my favorite line reading of the season so far, which is Patricia Clarkson wailing. She never leaves without her phone. Oh, she's straight <laughs> like, up wailing. Yeah, it's great. It's great. The hysterics, the adore hysterics on the porch. Um, as like you know, Camille reveals that that Emma has a second phone, and and they're all looking for her. And so she's all the- got Alan's sad fucking Confederate coat on. <laughs> yeah. You know, and she's just like flailing and yeah. crying and screaming over the balcony, and it's just it's like so good. It's everything you could ever want, and um. And so, yeah, so all the men run off into the woods and then also Camille runs into the woods. And, um, like my interpretation of what follows here is that Emma is drawing, intentionally drawing Camille like deeper into the woods. She's just sort of like making sure Camille sees her and then going deeper into, and then they finally wind up in the hunting cabin. What's your sort yeah. of interpretation of what happened? Yeah. There? I think that, I think that's good because, you know, early in the episode, she, She's trying to have this kind of heart to heart conversation, Camille and Aunt, w- with Emma, and, and she met, brings up the two dead girls. And she's like, I know you used to play with them or, 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 you know, hang out with them. And, and she's, so the house kind of, the, the shack comes into the conversation. And so I think, yeah, it's definitely intentional. You know, she knew that Camille would know where she was going. She wanted Camille to find her. Um, right. you know, it felt very calculated. Um, so to me, what that means is like when we find her in the cabin and her sleeve is ripped and she's bleeding, like that's something she's done to herself for attention. Yeah. She's she, cut herself for yeah, attention. Yeah. Cut herself. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then, so then we get this final pair of scenes. We get, uh, Adora and Camille on the porch and it's just like masterclass in manipulation of Adora being like, please come sit on the veranda with me. And then I want to apologize to you. And it is not an apology no it is so wicked like so you know camille cuts her off and apologizes she's like i shouldn't have written the article when i did i'm sorry mama that was like a bad thing to do and then dora's like well i just want to talk to you about how you're like your father and that's why i never loved you and i'm so sorry i apologize because you're so cold and you're incapable of love and i'm sorry and so that's true of you and because and camille has just told her that she doesn't get close to men yeah. And, and Adora's like, well, of course, because, you know, and then she said, I hope that brings you some comfort. Ah! Like, so like, it's crazy so town. awful. Yeah. So um, awful. beautifully performed by both actresses. Yes. Um, and, and also, you know, I kind of was like, oh, she's going to thank her because she rescued Emma, you know, but no, nothing from that. Um, no. yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty brutal scene. And I think the way that we see Camille react to it, um, is a credit to Amy Adams and Valet and the writer and Scott Brown who wrote the episode. Like it's just, um, it's so not histrionic. It's not screaming. It's just this like slight tremble of a chin, you know, and a watering of the eye. And you know that like internally, this is like the worst thing, you know, one of the worst things that could have been said to her. Um, but she doesn't want to like lose that composure in front of Adora, which is but also, a, you know, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that, but also it feels like a confirmation. She's like, yes, this is what I believe about myself. You are telling me oh, something that fully. I, a, a 
like fundamental truth I have about myself is that, and like the really cool thing, this is a weird association. I just saw the Mr. Rogers documentary, What Should Be My Neighbor yesterday. So it's like fresh on my mind. And this thing that Mr. Rogers talks, Fred Rogers talks a lot about is like at the core of everyone's behavior is this idea of love. And it's not just like the need to be loved, but the need to be able to be loving. And what, um, Adora is saying to Camille here is like, not only are you like unworthy of my love, I've told you that my whole life, I can't love you, you're unworthy of love, but like, you can't even love. Yeah. You're not even capable of loving. Um, and, and I'm taking no responsibility for any of this. That is your father. <laughs> that is your mysterious father you've never met. And I'm like, when of course Adora is exactly describing herself, she's like, that coldness in you, she says coldly, you know, it's yeah. just like, so monumentally unfair, hypocritical, cruel, manipulative, uh, but as you say, performed beautifully. Um, and so that brings us to like the word of the episode and the end of the episode, which is this like sexual, second sexual encounter with, um, Dick and Camille, where we get like, you know, uh, like full frontal from Chris, uh, Messina, but like Amy Adams stays almost entirely clothed. Um, except you like, but her face is like nakedly vulnerable. Yeah. And she, you know, insists on having sex her way, the way she feels comfortable. And we just get a flash of her skin. Um, like I would say in the small of her back, I think. And it says, uh, closer. Uh, is what it says, which is the name of the episode. Um, so what did you think of this, like, this final sex scene? I mean, it was pretty intense, you know, and, yeah. and I think it, it's, I mean, again, not to minimize it, but like entirely unsexy. Like, I, I mean, I just found it was so, if there was something just so like urgent, like, like needy about it and like obviously fraught to it that it's just, I don't know. I thought it was like, um, the opposite of gratuitous, you know, it's sort of, it, it, it felt s- so necessary to the episode in a strange way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I thought it was well staged, bravely staged by Chris Messina, I must say. Yeah. Um, there's some, there was some hand movement that I don't know mm-hmm. that I've ever seen in a, you know, cable television show. Um, yeah. And then to cut right out on that, you know, with, um, with this scene, yeah, I thought it was uh, it, the uh, a pretty jarring but worthy end to a, a pretty intense episode. And on that note, let's go to my conversation with Chris and Cena. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. 
Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hey, Joanna. We are loving you so much on the show. You're amazing and amazing this episode. So uh, I'm excited. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I love this episode. I really, it's um, things really start to heat up and I love, um, I love the tension of this episode and um, it was a bitch to shoot because it was a heat wave and <laughs> right, right. what started with hundreds of background actors um, every day, it got smaller and smaller. Uh, you know, what was, what they probably started out with was, Oh, cool. I'm, Maybe I'll meet Amy Adams and I get to be in this Amy Adams TV show um, and be a part of this world, you know, uh, it, it because of the heat and possibly, you know, the way Jean-Marc shoots, we were all out there kind of baking in the sun. You never really know where the camera's going to be. Um, he's a very improvisational director, and I don't mean by by language, but by images. So he gets inspired and, you know, go right with the camera and go left and go uh, to this character, that character, and you, you're on your toes not knowing where that's going to be. So we're all out baking in the sun. In fact, I think uh, some of the extras, uh, you know, had the, uh, you know, taken off set because they had, you know, were, were, you know, either fainted or were about to faint. Oh my God. Um, thankfully, Amy bought, uh, an ice cream truck for all of us and made everybody stop shooting and have some ice cream, which was perfect. It was, it was so hot. You just wanted to, you know, to pour the ice cream over your head. <laughs> there was, there's this reaction shot you have, yeah. um, where at one point you put your hand above your eyes to literally like shield your eyes from the sun as you're talking. And I was, I was watching that and yeah. realizing that that's both such like common human gesture, but also one you just, don't often see in film or television because usually actors have like sunshades over them. So it looks like they're in direct sunlight, but they're not. Yeah. That immediate, that, that, um, I like that too, uh, that, uh, that, that's in the series. Cause you don't see that that much. I think I had done it, uh, for a second and Jean-Marc, uh, liked it and, and then asked me, uh, to do, to you know, do it again. Um, he loves stuff like that um, and, and always finds um, moments like that that are, are real, but sometimes not often uh, seen uh, in, a, in a film or TV. Um, I also have to add, we were drinking tons of fake O'Doul's, uh, <laughs> fake beer, which was O'Doul's. So, you know, besides the heat, you were extremely bloated and yeah. gassy. So <laughs> none of it was... None of it was really that enjoyable, although, you know, we laughed a lot between uh, takes and, and I, and I seeing, uh, episode five, I was super, uh, into it. Well, you mentioned Jean-Marc's sort of unorthodox approach and everyone that I've talked to for this show sort of 
mentions how unorthodox his, uh, you know, methods are, but then also mentions sort of a moment where they felt like they could just give themselves over to that and go, well, okay, this is what it is. So this is just how it's going to go. And I'm going to roll with it. Did you have that moment? Or were you just on board with uh, his approach from the start? You know, I'm a, I was a big fan of his, I, since, you know, Dallas Buyers Club and Wild and, um, uh, of course, Big Little Lies. And, um, so I was really excited to work with him and, but it did take a moment. It, it was frustrating because I, I enjoy a lot of takes and I enjoy trying a lot of different things. And because he doesn't shoot that uh, much, he, um, really like most of the stuff in the series is take one, two or three. Uh, it didn't really go past that for me. Um, and there's no marks on the ground and there's no rehearsal and there's no lights. It, it, it was frustrating. It was, um, I often was coming up to him saying, can I try that again? Or I'd find him at lunch and be like, when we come back for lunch, can we just try one more? And he kind of laughed me off and say like, we got it. You know, I don't, you know, I don't, what what else would we do here? We got it. And eventually, and I'm not quite sure it happened pretty early for me. I started to, you know, just remind myself how much I loved all his work and I loved all his suggestions on the day. So I just started to lend myself over to it and say, you know, trust him. He knows what he's doing. Therefore, I think it freed me up. Um, I think sometimes what happens when you have a lot of takes, you can get in your head. Uh, I think when you over rehearse things, you start to try to repeat or look for a result, not all the time, uh, but that can happen. And I think he takes the acting away from the actors. And so if you're shooting the, if you're rehearsing on film, he's catching these raw um, discoveries. And I I think that's what's in the show and and, in a lot of his work. So I would work with him again in a heartbeat. I I thought he was um, extremely uh, inspiring. Uh, although, uh, you know, I, I banged my head into a wall <laughs> trying to get there. Well, you talked about the, you mentioned the, the shifting POVs in this episode. It's really, I agree, completely masterfully done. But what's so interesting to me as someone who's read the book is like the book is so anchored in Camille's head. And I think the addition of your character, the expansion of your character is one of the major ways in which the show shifts out of her head and into your perspective um, at times. What do you feel like Richard's perspective brings to, I don't know, broadening this, this, this world, this universe? I think that, you know, Richard is, uh, in a way the audience. And so, uh, we want to know about Camille. We want to know about what's haunting her and all the skeletons in her closet. Um, as he turns the investigation, uh, on to her and he starts uh, investigating her and at first possibly manipulating and at first, you know, needing of some uh, kind of communication an outsider in this town where nobody, uh, nobody wants him around. Nobody's giving him much. Um, it, it, it 
and I think it surprises Richard. He don't think he's quite sure, um, or maybe he's in uh, denial of how much he's starting to to like her. Um, so you know, it was important for me because there's not a lot uh, uh, that comes out about Richard that that I came to the project with my own backstory, my own heartbreak, my own skeletons. Um, and that I, I always thought that Richard was the, uh, the, the flip side of the same coin that he, uh, of Camille, that he is not as, he's not as in, the, he's not in the pain that Camille's in, but he knows that pain and he has his own heartbreak and he, uh, He's struggling to be seen and heard. You know, he's doing some stupid moves as a as a as a detective. He's like one oh one uh detective uh handbook, you know, don't sleep <laughs> with the reporter and I and I like that about the book. I like that about the script. Right. And, um, you know, he he's he's making mistakes. He may in sharp objects um after the eighth, eighth episode, uh, he may uh, he may become a better detective, and I think there are things that are that he's good at. But um, he definitely sometimes seems to me that he gets more involved with investigating Camille than the um, the task at hand, which is who killed these two girls. Right. Um, when you when you come to a project like that with this whole backstory that you've put together for yourself to inform your moves, is that something that you would share with a scene partner? Like, would you tell Amy about any of this stuff or would you just keep that as your own private sort of fuel? Yeah. It, in the past, I think I've felt the need to share stuff like that. And then sometimes a director or an actor could say like, Oh, I didn't see it that way. I saw it like this. And, um, um, and then you start rethinking it or reexamining it. And I, you know, for this particular piece and for this particular moment in my life, I didn't feel a need to share any of that. Um, uh, everybody has secrets and, um, I think it's, um, important in a scene to have plenty of them. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, I mean, so far we're only at episode five. Um, but so far I like, your version of Richard so much more than I liked the book version. Was there just like likability wise, was there any discussion of you sort of ramping up the warmth on him at all as a conscious choice? Um, it was important for Richard to be there working and uh, that he can't just be sitting in a bar drinking, flirting with the reporter. So first and foremost, it was work. And, and then it was, uh, she's obviously attractive. She's intelligent and he's um, an outsider and she's made herself an outsider. And so there's this, um, instant bond with that. And then there's the manipulation of what, what, you know, what can you share with me? And, and then something becomes, um, it, like I said, I, I don't think he's aware of how real it's getting for him. I think he's in over his head. And, you know, I think probably way too soon to say he's falling in love with her. But he, you know, he's 
he's fascinated and his heart is involved for sure. Um, and I think there's that cliche of, you know, the man feeling that he can save her, help her. And I think he, he wants to do that. And I think part of the, you know, the backstory kind of feeds into that. He's probably had some bad breakups and he's probably maybe a, a man that easily falls in love or lets himself, uh, uh, fall in love and, and, and wants to find love and wants to not be lonely. And, uh, um, and so I think these are traps he's maybe accustomed to. And this one's, um, um, it's deeper and it, it's, it's murkier and more complicated than he's ever, um, imagined it would be. I wanted to swing back really quickly to some of the like technical aspects of setting up the shots for this, this day, because you mentioned the shifting perspectives. One of the things that I was most taken by was this thing that Jean-Marc did where he would show you what one character is doing and then show you another character watching that character do that thing, you know, and just yeah. sort of like it keeps sort of hop skipping and jumping out and around. Um, what is the technical approach to doing, you know, say you have Bob Nash drinking and then you need to have Richard watching Bob Nash drinking or something like that. Like, do you have to hang around while he shoots the first and then you move the camera and he shoots you watching or, or how does that get put together? Yeah. He's kind of in that particular episode. He, he, you know, he had a, as a director and, you know, as a crew and cinematographer, most of the time cinematographer has the camera on his shoulder. So, uh, and sometimes that was John Mark. He likes to pop it on his shoulder and shoot some stuff. So it, they had a very, you know, hard task again in the sweltering heat to it, it just pop around. There was no real, um, uh, uh, I, you know, they were also fighting the sun where the sun was hitting and, and you know, what, what, what looked good, what direction looked the best. And, um, so they were just kind of like, you know, uh, randomly going around. And so you couldn't, um, if they were on Vickery, you wanted to be there, um, for him, for his eye line and, you know, what he was looking at me and Camille doing, you know, there wasn't a lot of downtime. Uh, in, in all the, uh, it was really just like kind of standing out there in the sun, watching them constantly, uh, dance through a a huge crowd of people. Um, we were all, you know, uh, uh, frustrated and, uh, you know, it was, it was a taxing few days for everybody, probably more so for, uh, the camera department who, you know, is, is lugging around every equipment. But, um, again, you know, um, when you see the episode, uh, you're, you, you say it was, it was completely, uh, it was completely worth the sunburn. <laughs> well, I imagine it must've been relief when you got to shoot the interior, uh, scenes inside the house with yeah. Patricia Clarkson, but this is also sort of your longest interaction, I think so far, by far with Patricia Clarkson. Yeah. What is it like working with, with her in this episode? You know, um, she is a friend and we did Vicky Christina Barcelona together as Amy and I did Julie and Julia. So uh, right off the bat, you have a, uh, shorthand, uh, you just cut through all the bullshit. You get into, um, 
into the meat of, uh, of the scenes. Um, Patty was incredible in that scene through the house. She, um, she has a very specific way of working, um, that, you know, I really admire. And, um, and so she said to me, it was one of the greatest acting lessons you can really get. Um, uh, we were outside the house about to go in again. She's got like five pages of, of, of dialogue where I interject, you know, three or four times like a, yeah, or a thank you. Or, <laughs> yeah. Or a, mm-hmm, you know, and so basically it's a monologue. And then Jean Marc says, you know, come in the house and tell him about the wallpaper and the staircase or the picture frames or whatever he said to her. Uh, again, there's no rehearsal. There's, um, there's no marks and, and that was really it. And then you'll just lead them up the stairs and then you'll come to the doorway here, you know, and they call rolling and Patty and I are outside the house and she says, Chris, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, she, she, she works in a way where she's not, um, a lot of actors are like walking around saying the line, saying the line, saying it out loud. I, 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 I could be butchering this, but I, I, don't think she um, she says it out loud at all or very much, if that makes any sense. Uh, so it's almost like, you know, when she's saying it, it's happening for the first time. And, and so she says to me, um, she said, I don't know what's going to happen. And I said, Patty, well, let's, uh, we're going to walk the tightrope here and they call action and she looks at me and she goes with a big smile on her face she says let's fail and she went up the stairs she went into the house and she started improvising about the wallpaper and we went up the stairs and she delivered this five-page monologue to me and she was extraordinary she was she was beautiful. And I, I would bet that that's the take, uh, they use. We didn't do many more. Um, and it was just a great lesson of relaxation. And, you know, of course she's incredible in, in, in so, so much of what we've seen of, of, of Patty, but, but the fact that she would, um, be willing to fail and say, who gives a shit? There's no wrong or right here. Um, let's do it. Let's do it wrong. And, um, if, if that doesn't work, we'll do it wrong again. And, um, it was, it was one of the great lessons of acting and maybe for anything in life, let's, let's fail and and take that kind of pressure off ourselves or expectation to be, incredible. And I think because she took that expectation off, she was incredible. You know, it really was, you know, between Patty and Amy and Elizabeth Perkins, and Matt Craven, it was, um, it was a masterclass. And, and the great thing about playing a detective is, um, what I think I learned is that, you know, the, a detective is listening and watching and observing and, you know, taking in the body language, uh, the, the, her, her nail polish on her feet, um, you know, 
her, you know, her eye color, her, you know, and so I got to get a front row seat of just observing these master actors. Um, and that was part of my job was to just take them in. Um, so ultimately as a fan, it was a, uh, it was an incredible job to have. And then, of course, I want to talk to you about this final scene that you have where, um, I don't know, usually when I'm watching HBO, it's like the the woman strips down to nothing and the man gets to stay fully clothed, often in a sex scene. What was this reversal like for you in this in this final scene? You know, I love that scene because um, all of what we did was directly in the stage direction. It was right from the writing and it wasn't gratuitous sex. It was character-driven sex. It was how much um, uh, do people show? Uh, what do you want to show? What do you want to see? Power, control. Um, um, so um, it felt very telling about who these people were and where they are in their lives. Um, of course, you know, sex scenes are always so strange because there's 40 people off to the side, you know, watching these things. Right. And uh, Amy and I would laugh and just make fun of each other, which was which was good and helpful. It just uh, takes away any uh, strangeness. But ultimately, it was it, it's a very it lacks so much intimacy. It lacks so much. It, it, it's not very sexy. Um, it's, there's, there's, you know, and I think in all the sex and sharp objects, um, uh, it's all, it's all character based and all, um, derives from, a you know, a pain, a lack of, of intimacy, uh, and a, and a wanting, a, a, a strong desire to be, uh, of, to be connected to somebody, to something. Um, so I, I really, I read that and I was like, this is incredible. So telling without words somehow, uh, how these two people would behave. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed, I, uh, I enjoyed it for, um, uh, it's bravery. How do you, uh, there's so much also emotional vulnerability from Amy in that scene. There's this great shot of her face and it's just like, so, so raw. How do you as a performer, how are you able to help and support her in that performance? Well, you know, um, so Amy, um, uh, Amy and I did Julia and Julia together and we became friends and I always wanted to do something else with her besides just eat her food and tell her how delicious (laughs) it was. And, Uh um, and I waited and made it and didn't know if it would happen. And then she said, have you ever read this book? And I hadn't, I was a fan of Gillian's and read the book, really wanted to do it. Um, Amy says, Jean-Marc doesn't know you. You come in and read. And I did. And she was like this great friend. Like every time we would read a scene, she'd like turn to Jean-Marc, like, wasn't that great? You know, like she just, she was, you know, being a supportive friend and, um, you know, she really fought for me to be a part of this. And I think one of the reasons she did that, and I think she she uh, had done it with more than just me, is she wanted to surround herself with, with people that she trusted and um, would, um, uh, you know, would be able to go to this dark place and feel supported. And um, 
so, you know, she's, she's an incredible actress and I'm saying nothing new here that the, 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 the best thing you can do with Amy is like, let her go and get out of her fucking way because she's so talented. Um, there's really nothing she can't do. Um, and she's a professional, uh, she works her ass off. She loves what she does and she treats, um, everybody with, uh, respect and love. She was a producer on this as well. So, you know, to watch her in these painful scenes, um, some of which she sometimes they would call um, cut and they would be setting up for another shot. And it was so dark uh, that there was no, and you know, it was more for her to do that. There was no, there was no escaping the kind of cloud over the set or over the scene. Uh, And other times um, like uh, um, that, that uh, end scene in the motel with me and her in episode five that they call cut and we'd have to just make fun of each other and laugh, you know? Um, So she's very, she's very, I don't know if people know this, but, but she's very funny and she can be very silly and we both get silly together. And, uh, and that's perfect for this kind of material because, because it's dark when you shoot a scene like that that is so um vulnerable for both of you what is it then what's the experience then like watching it with the final cut with the music that plays over it um seeing how Jean-Marc has put it all together what is that experience like for you well it's always painful for me to watch myself because I you know and this is probably the reason why some actors when you know when you hear them say like I never see my stuff or whatever because um, you can fall into like, I'm going to now destroy myself and beat the shit out of myself. You can, you can fall into that pretty easy. At least I can. Or, um, there's also the version where you learn, uh, a lot about, uh, you know, acting and, and cinema and, uh, Oh, I thought I was doing that and that didn't read, or I thought I was doing too much, but I was doing too little and, and on and on and on it goes. So, um, so there's always that dance, but with this, I've seen one through seven and I'd have to say, um, I feel like, um, Jean-Marc made me better. The actors made me better. The writing made me better. I've, um, you know, incredibly proud, uh, of the show and to be a part of it. That particular sex scene, um, I didn't realize how it's pretty dark, you know? Um, so, that was a kind of a relief, you know, because it's, um, and, and because you don't know where his camera is. So I wasn't quite sure, you know, trying to stay in the moment, uh, trying to kind of almost forget that there's, you know, you know, five guys with equipment in front of me as I'm naked. Um, I wasn't quite sure where that camera was pointing to be honest and what it was getting. So, um, yeah, seeing it, seeing it for the first time, uh, I, I think I was, I was probably had the feeling of, um, uh, wow, this is, uh, this is, um, kind of a heartbreaking scene. Um, this is a, like the, one of the strangest love scenes yeah. I've, I've seen because there's desire and, um, need and there's like, there's like a, like a, animalistic kind of, um, 
need to these people, but it's but it's broken and it's it's lacking intimacy and it's there's something wrong here. And then I and then in the vain aspect of me was like, I'm so glad that it's pretty dark <laughs> and that you can't that you can't see that uh, uh, that much of me uh that's probably better off for uh for me and the show in general so those were my my two thoughts i've only seen it once so uh i'm sure i'll have other uh other thoughts and possibly beat the shit out of myself uh as i often do i don't think you have anything to beat yourself up over yeah i've seen five and, and and did you read the book before? I did. Yeah, 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 I did. Uh, and do you remember the book like pretty uh, uh, specifically or did, did you have enough space between the book and the TV show? Um, I had a little bit of space and I've been rereading parts here and there to make sure that I can see sort of what adaptive changes have been made, um, if that makes sense. Because that's just yeah. something we want to talk about. Yeah, totally. But yeah. Um, so it's fun. Yeah, because it's not, I'm not like... So in the book that I can't enjoy the TV show as its own thing, but I just always find adaptation so fascinating. I'm just really interested in what feels worth keeping, what needs to be discarded and what needs to be added. You know, I think that's really interesting. So it's because you, if you think of this, if, if it was a movie and it was two hours, you know, um, it, it, what would be, there's so, you know, obviously be so much eliminated, um, it, that's what you know. I I love about the kind of eight hour movie form is the exploration into you know you can fill out the town, you can fill out the atmosphere, and you can slow it down. Um, right, because the whole Calhoun so, Day thing is not in the book at all, and so I was just sort of like really interested to see what would happen uh, with this yeah, thing that was put together. I think, you know, and and I don't remember it in the book honestly, but I feel like I've heard Gillian say like Calhoun Day was like a sentence in the book and then it's amazing like a the writer's imagination to make this this whole kind of weird you know celebration in this town um is it was 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 fascinating yeah you know? um excellent so yeah i hope you keep uh keep uh watching and i hope you keep enjoying it i think from my point of view i loved all of it and um uh but i felt like um in terms of like the the tension just from five on just it keeps um uh marching forward in this really spectacular way and um and I haven't seen eight, so I watched seven, so now my wife and I have to sit here and, and kind of you know we're like anxiously waiting to see uh, <laughs> even though I read it and shot it yeah, you know, yeah. how how it how it all wraps up but uh um, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, are you messaging, are you messaging HBO every day being like, can we get that rough cut of eight yet? Or what's happening? Where is it? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you know, um, I think, I, I, I think I should start though. I think I should start. Um, <laughs> HBO was kind that they showed, they showed, um, uh, me, uh, and my wife to one and two in, in the, like in their screen room and the seat on a big screen was, was, uh, super cool. Cause Cause he's a, it's, I mean, you know, it's, I hate to sound pretentious here, but he's a, he's a filmmaker. It's, 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 it's cinema. You know, he's, he was always making an eight hour movie. And I think that's what he did with being a little lies. He's, he, he makes these movies. And I think, um, um, 
the idea of having one vision, one director throughout, even makes it more cinema rather than, and there's a lot of great shows, uh, tons of them that have, you know, mixed directors, but having one voice, one person helming it is really, uh, I'm really all in favor because you, you, you just have, um, you know, you have one captain, you yeah. know, and, uh, um, whoever that may be, you're, you're kind of that you, they know the show, they know what we've done, you know, and a lot of times with the TV shows, you know, these directors come in and they're terrific and smart and they know the show, but they haven't been there for the first three. And so now they're talking, now they're talking to you about your character, but they haven't, they haven't really seen it, you know, come to life in that first three. And now they're directing episode four, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so having one voice, I, I think is, uh, is beautiful. No, I completely agree. I completely agree with you. And I, I like want Jean-Marc Vallée to give us the gift of a TV show, an eight hour movie every year or every other year, whatever stamina yeah. he has for that. Yeah. So. I don't know how the, how the fuck does he do it? I mean, right. he, he did, so he, cause he did an eight hour big little, I mean, it's like how, he did it. And I was concerned, to be honest with you. I was like, how is this guy? Cause I loved big little eyes and thought, you know, it was fantastic. I was like, how's this guy going to do it again? It's obviously so different. Um, so uh, maybe he will give us one every year. Yeah. We can only hope. Well, thank you again. And yeah. um, I am looking forward to seeing the rest of the season. All right. Well, that was uh, Chris Messina talking to us about this episode. We want to close out by doing a little book reader spoiler section. Should we lead in again with the pig squeals and the Tupac? I thought it worked out pretty well. Yeah, I thought time. Dave, did, our producer, did a great job with that. I mean, I guess we could change up the song to like Perry Como or something, but like, I don't want Dave to really, you know, stress himself <laughs> each out. Week, <laughs> each week a new Hog Heat remix. Uh, no, let's let's just go with Tupac and the pigs and uh and imagine you know. Jackie vaping to that sound like she. Yes. Like- <laughs> if we if we miss something again this week, please email us stillwatchingpod at gmail dot com. Please be nice to us when you do it. That would be nice. Um, but otherwise, we will see you next week after the spoiler section. You all appreciate. <laughs> All right. Well, so like the first thing I want to talk about is how incredibly well I think they're using, they're doing the floor, the floor stuff. Yeah. Well, uh-huh. actually, I first want to say going all the way back to the beginning of this episode oh. with the Ashley thing, the reason we didn't pay attention to it is because it doesn't yeah. fucking matter <laughs> unless <laughs> they change the ending of the story, which we should be conscious of. Of course, we don't want to accidentally spoil something by omission. You know, you can spoil right, by omission right. properly anyway. But yes, the floor stuff, very well done. Um, not too goofy or heavy handed. Um, yeah, I think they're setting that little reveal up nicely. I know they like, they laid in the theme, like the themes of the floor. I, like, I, I feel like if I were watching this show and not, didn't know the ending, I wouldn't be like, why are they spending so much time on this floor? I'd be like, yes, yes. All of this makes sense in terms of like how ostracized Camille feels and the history of the house and like uh, Camille's power. I mean, uh, yeah, Adora's power and all this sort of stuff. Like, I just, I'm really impressed with the floor stuff every single time and all the shots of it. 
which will help us visually later, you know, all of that. So, mm-hmm. uh, and if you're listening to the spoiler section and, uh, you haven't read the books, uh, the reason the floor is important is because in Emma's dollhouse is like where all the teeth of the girls that she's killed have gone to make the ivory inlay floor. So it's a whole thing. We get, okay. So then we get, um, you know, ever since I watched Breaking Bad, <laughs> I shouldn't have needed Breaking Bad for this, but I know it's a bad thing when you have a second cell phone. So, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. if I learned anything from Walter White, yeah. uh, the fact that, the fact that Emma has a second cell phone, the thing she says, uh, she, or, or Camille goes, do you have Anne and Natalie in there? And Emma, like her head, sh- like shoots up. Uh, like I'm guessing there are photos of the dead girls on her phone would be my guess. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, like, and uh, Camille means something more innocent by it. But Emma's like, what the fuck? Oh, you mean something else. But if okay. there are, and the, and but the story still ends the way it ends, like, no one will see them because it'll be, she'll, they'll find out when she goes to school, right? Well, they fi- they'll find out when she goes to St. Louis. I guess, like, she'll go back to St. Louis. I, I think, I bet if there are photos on the phone, They'll find them at the very end right. as sort of like collection of evidence or something right, like right, that. Right. Um, like I alluded to earlier with Vickery saying like good tree, bad apple. Like, um, I'm like, I would say Camille is the only good apple on that bad tree. So like strike that reverse of Vickery again. You're wrong. Um, the white dress that Anna gives her. My guess is that's the dress she wore, like the whole woman in white thing. Right. Um, I, I didn't think about that until the second time through, but I'm guessing that that's like the, the dress she wore to lure, um, you know, a young girl into the forest. So, um, the, we might see that dress again, uh, on Emma. Cause I was like, the second time through, I was like, why does she have another white dress? It's not the one that she's wearing. Why does she have this other dress? And then I was like, oh, that's her child having dress. Yeah. Well, we all, you know, we all have our crime uh, costumes. Yeah. Yeah. Mine. Um, I like to dress as the hamburglar, uh, <laughs> of go. McDonald's hands. Yeah. So, you know, and I put on one of Jackie's caftans and grab, grab my <laughs> oh. vape pen and get oh my going. God. The caftan plus the hair, like Jackie is just amazing. So good. Ugh, all hail is with Perkins. Okay. Uh, and the last thing I want to say is that, um, Oh, Katie Lacey inviting Camila over for beaches. Uh, I guess I didn't want to say this in the episode because I guess it counts as like a gentle, gentle spoiler. But like, uh, if they follow the book, Camille will be going over to Katie Lacey's house. And that was like probably either my favorite or second favorite scene from the book because this, um, Viper's nest sort of situation of Camille going into this house where all these women hate her, uh, and the way in which it turns on her is, I thought was like really incredible and relatable. And so, I mean, not that I've like gone home and had a bunch of like old cheerleaders from my high school invite me over and like turn on me, but like, I don't know. It just, it feels, it feels really, really, uh, relatable. But then again, like this whole season, has done a lot to make the whole like coming home thing feel relatable. I think. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, also, uh, I mean, uh, we didn't really get any indication either way from this episode, but do we think she's still going to sleep with the boy? I mean, I think so. And it's like, I don't know how we're going to get there. We're we only have, have time. like three more episodes. 
but I think it's just that like her feeling bad. Like she feels like a bad person when she's home and John Keen is I think gonna like approach her and be like, I feel like a bad person all the time here. Mm-hmm. And she's gonna see herself in that. And, I, and as I was sort of like trying to, when you brought up like the outsider that she relates to, like that John Keen represents the right. only other thing, you know? So like, um, I think so. Have we like done a good job of, uh, making sure everyone understands like how old John is, that he is at least like 18, right? Not that that makes sense. I don't know that we have. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Oh, well. He just, he just, just doesn't seem very boyish. Um, there's another John scene from the, uh, book that I have to wonder if we're going to get. Um, Emma mentioned, has mentioned, I think a couple times, like how she thinks that John, like, fancies her. Uh, and there's a scene in, in the book where, like, that Camille goes over there and all the girls are in the pool and John is like watching Emma. And the reason that he's watching Emma is he like suspects Emma, but like, I don't know. It's complicated. I don't know if we're going to get it, but um, we'll see. We'll see. John Keen. I'm still like sort of waiting to feel like I get, I need, I need a few more layers peeled back on John Keen before I feel like I really understand this episode didn't give much to do except like brood sweatily in a vest and look uncomfortable. Um, you know, which is plenty. It's mm-hmm. plenty to do. Yeah. Um, and I really loved Ashley's dress. Uh, yes. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, it was like classy, but like too short at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Somehow like, Ashley so finds good. a way. <laughs> yeah. Ashley finds a way. All right. Um, where can people find you on the internet until we talk about the next week's episode? Um, buried under my bedroom floor, which is made of dolphin bones. Ooh. <laughs> also, vf.com. How about you? Uh, <laughs> you can find me scrubbing all the bloody stains off of Ashley's floor. Um, in as Lady Macbeth a fashion as I possibly can. You can find me on VanityFair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. You can email us, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com, and we will see you next week. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.